We are the Mystery History Podcast. I'm Allison. I'm Rachel. Welcome to episode 92 on the Hillside Strangler part two. Woo woo. There's so many things that this case has got that it needs two parts. Two parts are necessary. Because it's a lot. There's a lot going on. It is a lot. And it's long. It is. But before we get into that, we want to remind you guys of the t-shirt giveaway we've got going on right now. It's for why, why are we doing it? 60,000 listens. That's amazing. It is amazing. And at this point, hopefully we have more than that. Yeah. (laughs) So in order to enter our giveaway, you have to become a patron on our Patreon, which is www.patreon.com backslash mystery history podcast. Find a link on our Facebook, on our Instagram, where all that information is. Um, so basically you can join our $2 tier or a $5 tier, $2 tier gets 10% off merch, $5 tier gets 20% off merch, and you'll have access to over 71 episodes of, of extra content that we put out Mm -hmm. every Friday. Never before heard, unless you are already a patron. That is correct. That is correct. And we've got some good stuff out there. Some of my favorite stuff is on there. I agree. Plus, what else do you get? Oh, you get, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you get a sticker and yeah. a love letter. <laughs> Always. You're going to get that too. And, and our love. Which our is, undying love and devotion forever. Right. And you can't put a price on that. You can't. So it's yeah, possible. It really oh, is. and if you're already a patron, you are automatically entered into the giveaway right and those t-shirts the t-shirt that we're going to give away is like 24 bucks so i mean you'll get 71 episodes uh, merch codes plus a possibility of winning a free shirt right nothing better than that it's a good deal it is okay well you want to tell us where we left off yes so we just left off with Ken Bianchi going to Bellingham, Washington, moving to Bellingham, Washington to be with his girlfriend and his child. And now it gets crazy. 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 Actually, most of the bad stuff has already happened, but it's just a wild rest of the ride. You're not going to be disappointed. You will not be. You'll be like, what? (laughs) Like that. All right. (laughs) All right. Here we go. Reunited with his family, Bianchi rented a small house at 401 East North Street and found employment with what comp security agency? Yeah. And that was at 2009 Iron Street as a security guard. In August 1978, he took a job in the security office at the Fred Meyer Super Shopping Center on Lakeway Drive, where he met a coworker named Karen Mandick. So she worked for Fred Meyer. In November of 1978, Bianchi was rehired by what comp security agency as a patrol captain. He applied to become a reserve deputy for what comp county sheriff's department and began taking police courses. So he just like really wants to be a cop. Yeah. Why? I don't know. <laughs> to Why? serve and protect. Right. Like <laughs> And this happens, speaking of BTK, this does happen all the time. He Mm -hmm. was in the security field too. That's terrifying. A lot of times they want to be police officers. It's got to be a power thing. It's got to be a power thing. And maybe access to more things, like more ways to get around because you're going to be in the know exactly what's happening and you're doing this on the side. I mean, yeah, maybe. Mm. Early Friday morning on January 12th, 1979, the Bellingham Police Department received information from the security office at Western Washington University, otherwise known as WWU, that two students were missing, Diane A. Wilder, age 27, from Birmingham, and Karen L. Mandick, age 22, from Bellevue, Washington. Wilder was a transfer student majoring in dance at WWU's Fairhaven College, and Mandic was a junior majoring in business administration. They shared a rental house at 1246 Ellis Street. 
Manda clerk part-time at the Fred Meyer Super Shopping Center, like we alluded to before, to supplement money she received from her parents for her education. Oh, yeah, although not not starting out good. No, although it was supposed to be a secret, Mandic had told coworkers and friends that she and Wilder had been offered a hundred dollars each by Ken Bianchi from Whatcom Security to guard a residence in a secluded Edgemore neighborhood for two hours while the security alarm system was being repaired. Located at 334 Bayside Road, it was a beautiful, sprawling ranch-style house overlooking Chuckanut Bay. It was owned by... <laughs> is that it? Sorry. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> I'm in second grade. Chuckanut. <laughs> uh, it was owned... By William V. Catlow, a recently retired Georgia Pacific Corporation executive who is vacationing in Europe with his wife, Calora. What a name. Is it Cleora? What did I say? Calora sounds like a venereal disease. <laughs> or like a cleaning, some sort Cleora. of cleaning thing. I don't know. <laughs> it's too fancy um, for me. It's it's a fancy name. It's pretty. Mm-hmm. On thursday january 11th so this is before they were reported missing mandic left the fred meyer store for an extended dinner break at approximately 7 p.m and was supposed to return around 9 p.m the store manager who considered mandic very reliable became alarmed when she failed to return to work as promised at about 11:30, he called steve hardwick a friend of mandic's who worked at the wwu security office to see if he knew her whereabouts She had told Bill Bryant, another friend who worked at the WWU security office, about the job, Mm. the secret job. He offered to go along, but Mandic turned him down. Mistake. Hardwick and Bryant scouted both Mandic's house, the Bayside address, and other likely locations for the two women um, or Mandic's green 1978 Mercury Bobcat two-door hatchback, but couldn't find them. Concerned about their mysterious disappearance, Hardwick immediately notified the Bellingham Police Department. So they were actually reported missing, like, quick. Good. After hearing the story, the Bellingham Police contacted Whatcom Security to see if they had any information about the two missing women. The owner, Randall W. Mao, called Bianchi, who claimed he had been at the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office Reserve Unit meeting and denied knowing Karen Mandic. So basically, it was like, I don't even know who this person is. Police then contacted Gordon Scott, commander of the reserve unit, who said Bianchi asked to be excused from the meeting, claiming he had to teach a class for his employer. At 2.30 a.m., police spoke with Bianchi, who admitted he hadn't attended the meeting, but instead had gone driving alone in the county. What a alibi. Mm. hmm Yeah. Driving along a long deserted road. <laughs> yeah. Just by my lonesome out, out in the wilderness. Nobody saw me. <laughs> by morning, there was still no sign of the young women. Excuse me. Bellingham's police chief Terry Magnan and Captain Dwayne Schneck visited Mandic and Wilder's house and talked to their neighbors and friends to no avail. Convinced they had intended to return the previous evening, Mangan ordered a full-scale investigation. Detectives Fred Nolte and Terry White were assigned to work the case full-time. The public was asking or asked for information that might lead to the locating to locating, I cannot read today, to locating the missing co-eds in Mandic's vehicle. Law enforcement agencies throughout the West were notified through the Western States Information Network about the disappearance. Meanwhile, detectives obtained permission from Catlow's family to search the house on Bayside Road. Nothing appeared out of the ordinary, but they discovered wet footprints on the kitchen floor. The WWU security office reported that neither Mandic nor Wilder had attended their morning classes. Frantic search for answers continued throughout the day. So they were really on top of this. Yes. I'm like pretty impressed how quick they were able to contact this bro in Europe and be like, Hey, can we get in your house? Mm -hmm. Um, Realize these girls were missing like a few hours after they were missing. Right. Very, very fast. 
So at 4.30 p.m., Shirley Schlemler, who lived on Willow Road, spotted a green Mercury Bobcat parked at the end of Willow Court. Um, This was a heavily wooded, undeveloped cul-de-sac off Willow Road, and she notified the police. Detectives rushed to the spot and observed two bodies stuffed into the car's back seat. The Bellingham Fire Department arrived with a basket crane and floodlights to illuminate the area. Robert Knudsen, Bellingham Police Evidence Technician, skillfully managed the crime scene. The bodies were carefully removed from the car, wrapped in clean white sheets to prevent the loss of any shred of evidence, and taken to St. Luke General Hospital on Chestnut Street. Medical examiner Dr. Robert P. Gibb conducted the autopsies and determined death was due to strangulation by ligature. The Mercury Bobcat was transported to the Bellingham Police Garage for forensic analysis and the cul-de-sac cordoned off to search for evidence. They did everything right. Sounds like it. Normally we have complaints. <laughs> yeah. Like smart with the white sheets, wrapping them so they didn't lose mm-hmm. evidence. Yeah. They're being quick. They're on it. Yep. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the what comes security dispatcher contacted Bianchi and told him to report to the security guards shack at the port of Bellingham South terminal. Shortly after his arrival, detectives took Bianchi into custody for questioning. Acting on a tip, they searched the area around the guard shack and discovered Wilder's coat stuffed between some pipes, only 20 feet from where Bianchi had parked his company pickup truck. During questioning, his alibis were so contradictory that detectives believed they had found the murderer, but without an eyewitness or a full confession, the case would rely almost entirely on circumstantial evidence. Mm. He thought he was smarter than everybody else. He thought he was, but obviously he's a freaking idiot. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness. On Saturday, January 13th, the investigation intensified. Detective Nolte, noting Bianchi's California driver's license, contacted the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department to check on his background. By happenstance, the call was referred to Detective Sergeant Frank Salerno a member of the Hillside Strangler Task Force that had been investigating the murders of 13 women since October 1977. Once he heard the address on Bianchi's license, Salerno immediately made the connection and made plans to fly to Bellingham. Yeah, so the connection, yeah, I know, right? I mean, this is like, this never happens. No, like the dream (laughs) team of police. Yeah, normally it's like, a bunch of dum-dums and you're like, yeah. why, why are you not picking up these pieces? Um, the Bellingham detectives methodically established links between the murdered women and Bianchi at their house. They found a note to Mandic and Wilder's handwriting that Ken Bianchi had telephoned on January 9th. Also Mandic had told friends about the secret house sitting job and mentioned Bianchi by name. A search of Mandic's car turned up a piece of paper with the notation 334 Bayside 7 p.m. Kin. Don't get any clearer than that. Yep. Detectives also noticed a small fresh dent in the bottom of the Mercury's gas tank, which they later matched with scraped rock under some bushes in the turnaround area of the Catlow home. A witness had seen a man matching Bianchi's description in the area that night driving a Whatcom security pickup truck. All the pieces are just fitting perfectly. Yeah, they're able to catch him. And I I want to back up because I am realizing that I totally missed out on a little section here. And I don't think we're going to talk about it later. The um call made to Frank Salerno with the address on Bianchi's license matched two of the murders from before, like didn't match their address, but matched like in the area. One of them was like the next door neighbor address. Really? Yeah. So that's what got him like thinking and searching. Yeah. Okay. So Oh, um, shoot. Never mind. Maybe we are going to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a little foreshadowing then. Yeah, um, there we go. <laughs> on Sunday, January 14th, Detective Salerno and his partly Dudley Varney arrived in Bellingham to determine if there was any, any similarities to the murders in Los Angeles. Bellingham police served a search warrant at Bianchi's house and seized his clothing, as well as property stolen from places he had been dis- assigned to guard. Cause he's just a uh-huh. freaking idiot. 
They also found a cache of stolen jewelry, at least two of the pieces, a large turquoise ring and a gold ram's horn necklace matched the description of jewelry worn by hillside strangler victims. So, so there like, was another linkage there. Uh-huh. Yep. Sticky fingers, man. And Got why would you trouble? Why something? Well, and especially something so like specific. Like mm-hmm. diamond earrings are one thing that everybody could have, but a golden gold ram's horn necklace. Not everybody's yeah. got one of those laying around. Mm-mm. No, it's definitely like specific to a person. On Monday, January 15th, Bianchi appeared in Whatcom County Superior Court before Judge Jack Kurtz and was charged with possession of stolen property. So now they have a reason to hold him. Mm-hmm. Prosecutor David McGarren informed the court that Bianchi was also the prime suspect in the recent double homicide, a capital crime carrying the death penalty, and asked for a high bail. Judge Kurtz agreed Bianchi was a potential threat to the community and a flight risk and set bail at $150,000. He appointed Bellingham lawyer Dean Brett to represent the defendant during future court proceedings. Physical evidence collected from the crime scenes, the bodies, and the car was sent to the FBI laboratory in Washington, D.C. for analysis. Carpet fibers found on the clothing worn by Mandic and Wilder, as well as those found on clothing Bianchi wore that night, matched samples taken from carpets at the Catlow residence. A meticulous search of the basement bedrooms revealed head hairs that match Wilder's. A single pubic hair found in the basement stairwell, along with pubic hairs found on Wilder's body, matched Bianchi's and traces of her menstrual blood was present on his underwear. Like, that is amazing that out of a whole basement, you find one pubic hair in the the stairwell. Like, that's insane. That is insane. That's just blows my mind. Like... (laughs) Just, that's amazing. Good for them. It is that's am- amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. At his trial, Bianchi pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, claiming that another personality, one Please. Steve Walker, had committed the crimes. It was believed he had recently seen the film Sybil about a woman suffering from multiple personalities triggered by childhood abuse. He convinced a few expert psychiatrists that he indeed suffered from multiple personality disorder, but investigators brought in their own psychiatrist, mainly Martin Orn. So like, just to pause here, he had people believing that he had this multiple personality disorder. From watching a movie. A few other things, but yeah, like he had these people convinced that he had it and you get to see him in the documentaries. Like there's videos of him being interviewed as himself and then also as this Steve Walker person. And it's completely different. I mean, you can tell, I can tell because I know probably that he's faking it. Mm-hmm. but sometimes like he did try really hard to put that other persona out there and be completely 100% different than what yeah. he was like this Steve Walker guy was a big dick and yeah. like didn't care and was like man like angry and or whatever and then Ken Bianchi was like a mild-mannered like persona Oh, okay. We're going to talk about it. I was going to talk about it. Yeah. So this Martin Orn guy mentioned to Bianchi that in genuine cases of the disorder, there tend to be three or more personalities. Just basically saying like, very rarely are there only two personalities. Normally there's three. Bianchi promptly created another alias, Billy. Orn proved that Bianchi lied about having multiple personalities to avoid being prosecuted and tested Bianchi again by introducing him to his lawyer who was not present. Bianchi interacted with the imaginary lawyer and then Orn brought in his real lawyer, which I mean, same guy, right? Right. This flustered Bianchi who claimed that the imaginary lawyer had vanished. 
Prior to his actual lawyer's appearance, Bianchi even leaned over to shake the hand of the imaginary one, which is an action referred to as tactile hallucinations. Experts explained that this event is rare, if ever, like truly happening during hypnosis, nor other types of neurological events triggered by hallucinations. So basically like you can hallucinate people, but like very rarely can you like touch them or you, you wouldn't. right? Right. Dr. Orrin had never once seen a true tactile hallucination in his career, suggesting that this was a complete fabrication and that he had pleaded guilty in order to avoid the death penalty. Um, or I'm sorry, he pleaded guilty at this point in order to avoid the death penalty in Washington state. That Dr. Orn guy in the documentary, he was kind of like a super dick also. Like whenever that happened, that's exactly what I was going to talk about is that whenever he's like, well, that you wouldn't Uh, have done that if it was real. Like if you were really, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, yeah. And at the point that, at the point that he had done that, he already knew that Bianchi was lying because he thought he was lying to begin with. And then he's like, oh yeah, there's always at least three. And he's like, meet my friend, Billy. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Well, it seems like throughout the whole time, whenever you're watching him switch it, he does. So at their request, almost like, yeah, let me talk to the other one. And he's like, okay, here I am. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think that's how it works. I don't know. Just super suspicious. Right. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Eventually investigators discovered that the name Stephen Walker came from a student whose identity Bianchi had previously attempted to steal for the purpose of fraudulently practicing psychology. Yeah. Police also found a small library of books in Bianchi's home on topics of modern psychology, further indicating his ability to fake the disorder. Once his claims were subjected to his scrutiny, Bianchi attempted or admitted that he had been faking the disorder, which we all knew. He was Mm -hmm. diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder with sexual sadism. In an attempt to obtain a reduced sentence, Biaki agreed to testify against Bono. However, it's given giving his testimony, Bianchi made every effort to be as uncooperative and self-contradictory as possible, apparently hoping to avert Bono's conviction. Right. Dumb. Why would this you guy. care at that point? If it was me and like my friend was getting away with it, I'd be like, oh no, no, no. <laughs> He did it too. So just know <laughs> that if I get yeah. caught, I'm taking you down with me. <laughs> so if I decide to murder people, it should not be with you. Right. Noted. No, no. Don't She's don't not the girl. <laughs> no. I'm going to prison. You're going to prison. Uh, we can be sellies. So. We can have a great time, but you're gonna be yeah. there with me. Right. I'm not doing this on my own. All right. So this whole section, this upcoming section, I, this was not in the documentary, I don't think, which I watched twice. So I'm like pretty positive it was not. And this was insane. In June, 1980, Bianchi met Veronica Lynn Compton, age 24, a self-proclaimed actress, poet, and playwright. She sent Bianchi a letter at the Los Angeles County jail asking if he would read her screenplay about a female serial killer called the mutilated cutter and help her with characterization. The plot gave him an idea to gain his freedom. The hillside strangler was still on the loose and killing women. Yeah. So this was like the birthing of this plan. Compton visited Bianchi in jail on numerous occasions between June and September 1980 while he was waiting to testify against Bono, and they concocted an elaborate scheme to prove his innocence. Compton would fly to Bellingham, strangle a girl with a length of white clothesline, and plant evidence to simulate the Mandic Wilder murders. Additionally, she was to send letters and cassette tapes to various locations in Los Angeles and Bellingham with messages that the wrong man was in jail and the strangler would strike again. On Thursday, September 16th, their last meeting, Bianchi provided Compton with the final touch, a semen specimen in the fingertip of a latex glove to smear on the victim's body. He had concealed it in the spine of a book she had previously loaned to him. Yeah. Yeah. What? (laughs) Okay. So 
So this girl is willing to commit a murder, number yep. one. Number two, I'm confused about the semen. Because wouldn't it have been his? Uh-huh. And then it so was I don't, linked they were gonna back be to like, him. Oh, look, somebody else has the same semen. <laughs> and we got the wrong guy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> okay. They're dumb. They're so dumb. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. So, okay. Compton flew to Bellingham and on Friday, September 19th, 1980, she befriended Kim Breed, age 26, a Bellingham Parks and Rec employee, while drinking at the Coconut Grove Tavern at 710 Marine Drive. After spending several hours together, Compton lured Breed to her room at the Shangri-La downtown hotel. Shangri-La, I think it was supposed to be more... Yeah, we're together. <laughs> anyway, it's on Holly Street with the promise of some cocaine. Once there, Compton managed to tie Breed's hands and twice strangled her, almost to the point of unconsciousness. Although intoxicated, Breed was bigger and unusually strong, and it managed to struggle free to escape. That's how people uh, say I am. I know. <laughs> bigger and unusually strong. <laughs> Me too. This is why we will never be targeted, right? <laughs> she's she's too strong. <laughs> I like unusually yeah, strong. <laughs> yeah. Well, good for her. Yeah, good for her. And I legitimately feel like this this could be you or me. <laughs> she was bigger and unusually strong. Uh. Was not expecting that. <laughs> Compton quickly disappeared from Bellingham, but she was pretty easy to trace on Thursday because she's a moron, obviously. Yeah, Yeah, pretty dumb. (laughs) On Thursday, October 2nd, 1980, she was arrested at her home in the Shangri-La trailer park, which like, what? Hold on. So it's the same as the hotel? (laughs) This is in Carson, California. So she's so dumb. What are the chances? That was obviously a, that was. (laughs) It's for her play. (laughs) Yeah. Like, haha, I'm going to go here. But really, I live in a trailer park in California. Right. So this was on a Whatcom County warrant charging first degree attempted murder and held on a $500,000 bail. The media delighted at this turn of events, dubbing Compton the copycat strangler. I would like to take one more pause here. So if you recall, Bianchi was being held for stealing stuff and they thought that he committed these other murders and they were like, yeah, let's give him a big bail, Uh $150,000. That's what I was thinking too. Like that's that's not a lot. 150 no and yeah, she's being held enough. at 500,000 500, and she didn't even really do anything because she was unusually strong <laughs> I mean she tried so to be fair yes this girl's obviously a menace to society but like 150,000 is the best you could do on Bianchi yeah that is weird <laughs> that is weird anyways Compton's trial began on Monday, March 9th, 1981 before what County Superior Court Judge Byron L. Swedberg To guarantee a fair trial, a jury of four men and eight women were selected from Pierce County, bussed to Bellingham, and sequestered in a hotel for the duration. The case was basically a question of credibility. Breed testified that Compton set her up and tried to kill her, and Compton claimed the incident had been a charade to gain publicity for her screenplay, The Mutilated Cutter, and that Breed was in on it. Oh my god. I bet she disagrees with that. She was wanting right. some cocaine. Right. That's all she wanted. That's all she wanted. Oh, my God. Plus, the mutilated cutter reveals to me there would be cutting involved, not strangulation. You would think. I don't know. These people are idiots. I know. The trial was concluded on February, March 20th, 1981. After deliberating. Wait, for just- wait, wait, wait. What? You said it was concluded on February, March 20th. <laughs> I've lost my damn mind. Uh, we hit the 10 p.m. mark and we're both oh, not okay. Man. Okay. Thank you for Friday. saving me. 
It was Friday, but you should have known when I said February, I meant Friday. She meant Friday. (laughs) Friday, March 20th, 1981. After deliberating for just three hours, the jury found Compton guilty of first-degree attempted murder with a special finding of being armed with a deadly weapon, which was a ligature, which was probably what? Not a cutter. Or something like this white. Well, they said something about whatever. Yeah. I mean, anything could be a ligature, really. Right. Which carried a mandatory minimum sentence of five years. On May 22nd, 1981, Judge Swerberg sentenced her to life without the possibility of parole. No, with, with the possibility. Oh, with. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) You want the facts when you're listening to this? Because just, you're not going to get them. (laughs) Obviously not. I did my best. Uh, I typed the right words. <laughs> so with, what are we doing? <laughs> I wish it was without, but it's with the possibility of parole due to the calculated viciousness of the attack on breed. How pissed would you be if you were breed and, and if they gave her a mandatory five years, like that bitch tried to kill me. You're going to give her five well, they years. Sentenced, they sentenced her to life. I know, but I'm just saying if they didn't and give her the mandatory, oh. I'd be pissed. Yeah. I'd be happy too. with that. With right. life. That'd be good enough. All right. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and the story proceeds. During her time at the Washington Corrections Center for Women in Gig Harbor, Compton had at least two high profile correspondences with other men. One of them was Doug Clark, a serial killer who had murdered girls and women in the Los Angeles area with his girlfriend, Carol Bundy. They were known as the Sunset Strip Killers. It's unclear whether Compton knew who Clark was when he began writing to her or what the nature of their relationship was. Compton has disputed claims that they were in love or engaged. The other correspondence was with James Wallace, a political science professor at Eastern Washington University who was 26 years older than her. Wallace sometimes taught at prisons, and after hearing one of his lectures in 1987, Compton wrote him a letter. Over the next two years, they continued their correspondence and developed a relationship. In 1989, Wallace divorced his wife of 38 years so he could marry Compton in a prison ceremony. What the actual hell? <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yep. Huh. What a lucky guy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, his poor wife, like 38 years. Yeah. Like, really? This is what you're (laughs) going to leave me for somebody in prison. Yeah. You're not even going to be able to have sex with them. No, probably. Well, actually, (laughs) actually, who knows? I guess we're going to know. We're going to (laughs) know. During the first several years, hold on. I need to read these notes before we talk. Do you? Because I enjoy this. <laughs> I'm always on the right trail. Yeah. Just one step are. behind. Um, <laughs> okay. So during the first several years of her sentence, Compton had no communication with her son, who she'd given birth to at the age of 17. In July 1988, Compton escaped from prison to try and see him, but was caught in Arizona and returned to prison after a week and a half. She convinced Wallace to adopt her son, which he did. In 1993, she gave birth to her second child, a daughter, at St. Joseph Medical Center in Tacoma. Then, so obviously they were getting down. Yeah. Then in 1996, Compton received uh, received parole, surprisingly, and joined Wallace and her daughter at their home in Cheney. By this point, her son was an adult, but Compton lost her parole after only two weeks. Shocker. Yeah. So things had started to go downhill when a social worker visited Compton and Wallace's house to check on their daughter. The social worker claimed Compton answered the door naked and had pornographic paintings on the walls that were inappropriate for a child to see. Compton disputed that she answered the door naked and attorney attorneys and parole officials disputed whether the paintings were inappropriate. 
But the fact was that Compton had also stopped seeing her counselor, which was a condition of her parole. Compton returned to prison, then earned parole again in 2003. That year, she also published a book titled Eating the Ashes, Seeking Rehabilitation Within the U.S. Penal System under the name Veronica Compton Wallace. Otherwise, Compton has managed to keep a low profile since her release. Better children are so proud. I bet they are. So we went on that little journey because I was like, what the heck? That's insane. It is the life There's... and times of Veronica Compton. <laughs> it what scares a me. Of a human. <laughs> it scares me how easily people are like, that sounds like a great idea. Let me promote yeah. my, my book and then I'll help you act like you're not really the murderer by trying Give to kill someone. Give me your semen in a glove. <laughs> Hot. All right. Let's talk yeah, about... So- Wono. Back to the original story. <laughs> Within 30 minutes of Bianchi's guilty plea, the Hillside Strangler Task Force arrested Bianchi's cousin, Angelo Buono, at his residence slash automobile upholstery shop at 703 East Colorado Street in Glendale, California. Buono was taken into custody without a struggle and charged in L.A. County Superior Court with 24 felonies, which included 10 murders, extortion, conspiracy, sodomy, and pimping and pandering. Although the L.A. District Attorney's Office had evidence linking Buono to the crime, they believed his fate rested on Bianchi's credibility as a witness. The acceptance of his guilty plea by Judge Kurtz in Bellingham had rendered him a competent witness in the eyes of the law. Yeah. Huh. In Los Angeles, Bianchi again tried to influence judicial proceedings by recanting his pretrial testimony against Bono and then disavowing his recantations, undermining his value as a credible witness. Los Angeles County District Attorney Van de Camp, who was eyeing the job of California Attorney General, was afraid of losing the case based, in his view, almost entirely on Bianchi's testimony. In July 1981, he allowed the trial prosecutor, Roger Kelly, to move to dismiss all 10 murder charges against Bono and release him. That's insane. Yeah. But... After deliberation, Judge George ruled that there was enough evidence to warrant a trial and ordered the case to proceed. Van de Kamp then declared a conflict of interest as his office had already come to the conclusion that they could not convict Bono. Judge George accepted the conflict and reassigned the case to the California Attorney General's office under George Duke of Motion. It was then assigned to Deputy Attorneys General Michael Nash and Roger Boren to prosecute. They believe that the evidence linked Bono to the murders was overwhelming, even without Bianchi's testimony, and began vigorously preparing for trial. So let's just pause a moment. Because this bro wanted the job of California Attorney General, he was about to let somebody go that was guilty of murder just because he was afraid he couldn't win. Yeah. I like WTF. I bet that happens a lot because it's all about their win ratio or whatever. Yeah. Like they uh, think they're going to win. They're not going to take it. That is insane. Yeah. Like this guy, like what? (laughs) I just, uh, yeah. Pre-trial hearings began on Monday, November 2nd, 1981 with numerous motions, testimony, and lengthy oral arguments. On a, mo- on a motion by defense to exclude all hypnosis-induced testimony, George, George, Judge George ruled that Bianchi had feigned hypo- hypnosis. Mm-hmm. I was going to say hypotenuse, which isn't even a word. And his multiple personalities and his testimony was admissible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bono's trial began on Monday, November 16th with jury selection, a drawn out process that took three months to complete the number of victims and mountains of forensic evidence to introduce slowed the proceedings, causing the case to drag on Bianchi, the 200th witness to testify spent 80 days on the stand. Holy cow. Yeah. He continued to slow the trial's progress, proving a reluctant witness and making deliberate contradictory statements. At one point, he claimed he had completely lost his memory. Another time, he denied committing any murders, including those in Bellingham. Like so you this do. This guy's basically a pain in the ass. Yeah. 
Well, he just doesn't want to be convicted. So he's just trying to draw it out as long as he can. Well, he no, this is Bianchi. He was already convicted. Oh, so he's, he's trying, trying to, to protect get his friend. Off. Yeah, his cousin or whatever. Dumb. Yeah. I would drag you down with me. Definitely. <laughs> as as we've uh, clearly stated already. <laughs> hey, everybody. Don't commit murders with Allison. <laughs> She's definitely a snitch. <laughs> I would definitely tell on you. For sure. Anybody. Jury deliberations finally began on February, October 21st, 1983. (laughs) Oh man, nobody's going to want to listen to us ever again. (laughs) What's happening? It was Friday. If she says February, she means Friday. All right, friends. Why do I want to say February? Because it's February. I don't know. Nothing's (laughs) ever been in February. I don't think this whole time. It's all been November's anyway, Friday, November, (laughs) Friday, October 21st. I thought I was doing really well and then caught me for a loop on November 18th, 1983. After being sequestered for 28 days, the jury of seven women and five men found Buono guilty of nine of the 10 murders and voted to impose life sentences without possibility of parole rather than the death penalty. With a duration of two years and two days, it remains the long, holy shit, that is so Mm -hmm. long. It remains the longest criminal trial in American history and cost LA County taxpayers $2 million. Wow. Wow. Oh, if I was a taxpayer in LA, I'd be pissed. Pissed. (laughs) Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's bad. Wow. On Monday, January 9th, 1984, Judge George formally sentenced Bono to nine concurrent terms of life without the possibility of parole, a penalty set by the jury. He said, in view of the jury's mercy, I am, of course, without authority to impose greater punishment. I would not have the slightest reluctance to impose the death penalty. If ever there was a case where the death penalty was appropriate, it is this case. Yeah. So... Angelo Bono was sent to Folsom prison where in 1986, he married for the fourth time. His bride was Christine Kazuka, mother of three and supervisor at the California state department of employee employment development in Los Angeles. Because Bono was not eligible for parole. He was denied conjugal visits on Saturday, September 24th, 2002, Angelo Bono died at the age of 67 from a massive heart attack in his cell at the Calpatria state penitentiary in a phone interview with CNN retired Bellingham police detective Fred Nolte said the world will probably, it will probably be a better place without him. He will not be missed. Actually after for by his dumbass wife, how do you find people to marry you? Like what? There are people people? that are not in jail. that can't get married and find the right one right like how pissed would you be if you're like nobody loves me and this guy's in prison for the rest of his life without conjugal visits yeah just get married married in the mother of three she needs to be taking care of those kids not this man in prison because you know all all that does for the man is have the woman send him money snacks yeah he needs snacks I get it. Snacks. Easy Mac. You need it. But mm-hmm. those poor kids ain't getting it. No. Freaking crazy. <sighs> okay. So let's go back to Bianchi. Mm-hmm. He's serving his sentence at Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> 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 On Thursday, September 21st, 1989, he married Shirley Joyce Book again with the marriages. Age oh. 36 of Monterea, Louisiana, in a 15-minute ceremony in the prison chapel. The day before the wedding was the first time they had ever met, but they had corresponded since 1986, exchanged taped messages, and enjoyed numerous phone calls. Previously, Book had tried to correspond with serial killer (laughs) Theodore Robert Ted Bundy, but all of her letters had been rejected either by this is sad either by officials at the florida (laughs) state prison or by bundy himself so well you didn't get bundy let's go with this um when prison officials denied bianchi conjugal visits he sued 
but Walla Walla County Superior Court Judge Donald Schracht declared that they had acted within their authority. The visits had been denied for security reasons and because of his record of extreme violence towards women. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be alone with this man. No, definitely Especially not. if there was any shoelaces, fishing anything. wire, anything. Yeah. Come not in naked. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Not for me. In 1992, Bianchi sued Catherine Yernwad for $8.5 million for having an image of his face depicted on a trading card. He claimed his face was his trademark. (laughs) (laughs) The judge dismissed the case after ruling that if Bianchi had been using his face as a trademark when he was killing women, he would not have tried to hide it from the police. (laughs) Maybe he is kind of like Ted Bundy. Like, what kind of, where do these people get this exuding sense of confidence? Like, where do you get that? Yeah, I don't know. Can I have some? Thank you. (laughs) Oh, he was denied parole on August 18th, 2010 by a state board in Sacramento. He will be eligible to apply for parole again in 2025, but on February 1st, 1984, February, I said it right. It is actually February this time, not Friday. Mm -hmm. The California Mm -hmm. Department of Corrections filed a detainer with the Department of Corrections in Washington to ensure that if Bianchi is ever released from their custody, he will be turned over to California to serve his life sentences there. Both states would have to grant parole or clemency in order for him to ever be released. Which that will not happen. No, he'll be there for yeah. life. He gonna die there. Yep. But yeah. Wow. Roller coaster ride, right? <laughs> I'm shook. This guy is crazy. And then there's so many other crazy people just like around. I feel like craziness just, you just get other crazies with you. It's amazing. It's like right. moth, to, and- moth to a flame. Right. And like, how pissed would you be if you were Angelo Buono? Because like they murdered all these people and got away with it. Uh-huh. And then as soon as this a-hole goes off on his own and decides that he's going to kill people, gets caught immediately. Whenever they And then <laughs> you get caught. <laughs> yeah. I'd be pissed if I was him. Yeah. <laughs> he's like all meticulous. And obviously, apparently the only reason they didn't get caught before And then, yeah, he's definitely (laughs) the brains of the operation. And this is so crazy. Like I did not just that comment about that girl sending letters to Ted Bundy Mm -hmm. really does. He really does. Bianchi parallels a lot with him, like Mm -hmm. the ability to try to swindle people by making them believe that he has some, you know, personality disorder Mm-hmm. and I mean there there are a lot of similarities here and like he would have he could have gotten away with that because he did convince some people and I some bet, psychiatrists and I bet most of it was just watching that movie figuring out what she had done having reading books. some books yeah and yeah. that's it mm-hmm. yeah wow. could have got away with it thank goodness for that orn guy yeah being like this guy is an idiot I mean ugh. And like, too, just the, like he faked those two personalities for a while. Right. And then this guy's like, oh, they always have at least three. Why are you so dumb that you're right. immediately going to walk in the next day? Like meet my friend, Bill, right. like give it some time. Well, and like problem is he couldn't like, it was immediate for everything. Let me talk to Steve okay hello like Mm -hmm. that's not how it works bro like that's not how it works no (sighs) he'd be dumb insane yeah Yeah, he'd be very dumb what a wild ride and so sad for all of those I mean he got away with a lot and then they both Mm -hmm. yeah got away with so many um for no reason Mm -hmm. just because they could essentially I mean no, there was so like sad. some speculation that Bianchi was like taking things out on women because of his mother and like not being able to take the like, re- like rejection, suppressed regression, yeah, aggression stuff out on her. So he took it out on other women and yeah, just I don't know. It's it is insane. Yeah, super sad. It is. Oh. It's very sad. Whew. Let me set my sources. Yes. Um, I use 
wikipedia.com, allthat'sinteresting.com, investigationdiscovery.com, murderpedia.org, biography.com, historylink.org, and aetv.com. And the Hillside Strangler documentary on Hulu. On Hulu. It's very yep. good. Yeah, it was good. So, all right. Well, oof, let us know how you yeah. feel about this. <laughs> right. Craziness. Absolutely insane. I still want to know more about this weirdo Veronica Compton. And like, who are these people? I just, I do not understand people that reach out to serial killers and like I get being like curious maybe to like correspond first of all I would would. just like I would would not put myself into that position I don't think but going to a PO box (laughs) yeah like (laughs) with a fake name and yeah yeah, in a different state whatever like I can see that I can see being so like morbidly interested that you would want to correspond with somebody in that faction but the fact that there are women out there that are like I would love to get married to somebody who murders women. Those are those women that feel like, and I feel like as women, we probably have a little bit in all of us where, oh, I can change him and I'm going to make him so much better. Honey, he's in prison for life. (laughs) He's a lost cause. I can't do anything about it. He's done. He's done. Or maybe just the facts to say I'm married. And that's good enough. Like, it's like I got a girlfriend on just the internet. Just being married, period. Yeah, no. You know what I mean? Like, it's just <laughs> yeah. about being able to talk about it and feel yes. like you're notoriety in-, in that case. Like, hey, I'm married to the serial killer. Like, I don't know. Well, I just can't. That like, last I can't wrap my mind around it. Yeah, I she's mean, just looking for somebody that was a serial killer to love her and, and okay. violent to women. Yeah, both of specifically. them. Specifically, I don't get it. I really don't. I don't get it's- it either. That is insane to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, there you have it. Yeah. Have a well, lovely week, friends. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed this episode 91, The Hillside Strangler. Let us know what you think about it. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.